Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Have you ever been anxious when you are about to meet someone for the very first time? Sometimes we might feel intimidated, apprehensive, even a little scared, perhaps, at the thought of meeting someone new. And we can start to think about ourselves. Will they like me? What will they think of me? What if I say something stupid? What if I embarrass myself? What will be their impression of me? Sometimes as questions like these swirl around in our minds, we might begin to be afraid or even worried. Left unchecked, it could even make us paralyzed. I can't do it. I can't meet anyone new. I can't go through with it. There's just too much pressure. Why might this happen to someone or why might this even happen to us in life? Why might we have these feelings when we meet someone new? Could it be that these questions show us that we really fear people? We might call this the fear of man. People become so big in our minds, so big that we want to please them, so big that they consume our thoughts, so big that their validation and approval or acceptance means everything to us. We would say to ourselves, I can't bear the thought that someone wouldn't like me. We can spend so much time or give so much energy towards making people big in our own lives. They can live rent-free in our head. And this isn't love. It's not self-sacrificing oneself. It's not healthy. It's unhealthy. It's anxiety-filled. It's paralyzing, debilitating, turning in on ourselves and really worshiping ourselves. Could it be that people might become so big in our lives that they hold this improper place in your life because of how highly you think of yourself? Because of our own pride? We might spend much time thinking about how others might perceive us when we meet them for the very first time. But do we ever spend the same amount of time thinking about what God thinks about us 
when we are going to meet with Him. What thoughts do we think, what feelings do we feel at the prospect of meeting with God? Are we nonchalant? Are we lackadaisical? Are we apathetic or disinterested or unfeeling? As I was looking up all of these synonyms, there was one that popped up in my thesaurus that was interesting. Are we Laodicean, it said there. Laodicean, what is that? Well, actually comes from the Bible. There were Laodiceans in the Bible. In fact, Jesus spoke to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, and this is what he warns them about. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The image there is very violent. It's, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You are good for nothing. Would it be that you were hot or would it be that you were cold, but you are lukewarm? So I wonder if we are ever Laodicean. Perish the thought of a lukewarm Christian. Would we ever be anxious or apprehensive or even afraid to meet with God? And should we be? How often today, so many people can give a different image of God. They portray God like a big teddy bear or like a lovable grandpa who never says no, always has a sweet to pull out of his pocket and dust off the lint to give it to you. Or that God will give you whatever you want if you just have enough faith. Meeting with God, they say, is always easy and always comfortable, always tells you what you want to hear, and it leaves you with a warm fuzzy inside. We must have an accurate view of God when we meet with God. And our view of God comes from how he reveals himself to us, not who we make him to be. God says who he is, and we don't have any say in who he is or why he does what he does. But there is good news for us this morning. God wants to meet with us. He wants to have a relationship with us, and he instigates it. He starts it. Left to ourselves, we would not cause it to happen. We cannot cause it to happen. As if we could reach up to God in heaven and make God meet with us. We cannot manipulate God. God comes to meet with us. And He wants to commune with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. The Puritan John Owen says this about communion with God. Our communion with God lies in His giving Himself to us and our giving ourselves and all that He requires to Him. What a beautiful picture, isn't that? God giving Himself 
to us and we giving ourselves and all that he requires to him. Do we give much thought to meeting and communing with God? And do we thank Him that it's first Him loving us? In this is love, John says in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but what? That He has loved us and sent His Son. What do we, what do you expect to happen when you meet with God? Are we meeting with God, the God who has revealed Himself in the Bible, or are we desiring to meet a God of our own imaginations? Are we desiring to meet with Him? Do we want to meet with Him? Do we say, yes, there is nothing greater that I can think of in this life than to meet with the living God? Or does our meeting with Him ever become mundane? Wrote, just going through the motions. Even doing it, even meeting with God for what other people might say, how other people might view us, rather than having the accurate and Bible-saturated view of who God is, and form how we then meet with Him. The Israelites are about to meet with this God. And He is establishing His covenant, His relationship with them, His oath-bound commitment to them. And He has led them to a very important place in the Bible. He has brought them to the very mountain of God, Mount Sinai. How is it that they're going to be able to meet with their God? What has to take place in order for them to meet with God? And what does this relationship look like? What can we learn from this text on how we might prepare to meet God? Three ways that we can learn to prepare to meet our God. Or four ways, I'm sorry. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful this morning. But number one, we are to willingly receive the word of the Lord. We are to willingly receive the word of the Lord. Willingly receive God's word. Moses has just been up on the mountain of God. And now he comes down for the first time here in verse 7. He calls all of the people, all of the elders together, and he sets before them the words of the Lord that the Lord has commanded him. And here we see Israel called together as a congregation. They assemble together for a specific purpose and reason, and that reason is to hear the word of the Lord. Sounds much like what we do, doesn't it? We gather together, we assemble together. Why? Because we want to hear from God's Word. Because we know that in hearing God's Word, we're hearing from God. There is something necessary about hearing the Word corporately. 
that God would use his word among us together to transform us together, to conform us together more and more into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, but also so that we together are held accountable as one people and one body to the word that we hear What's fascinating is that in the Israelites' response, they are accepting this covenant, they're accepting this commitment to the Lord that He is establishing, and they haven't even heard the terms yet. They haven't even heard all of the specifics. The specifics are coming next chapter, the Ten Commandments, but as of yet, they haven't heard the specifics And yet they initially affirm that they want to obey the Lord. They want to follow His Word. And at this point, they are, do it, they are doing it even willingly. But if we are reading the rest of the story, we, knows what hap- we know what happens to the Israelites, don't we? <laughs> I mean, listen to how great this sounds. Verse 8, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yes, we're in. It sounds great. It sounds like something that we would want to emulate. But we know that the Israelites do not keep the covenant of the Lord. They do not obey. In fact, some of my friends one time were reading this account to their little daughter And they came to this verse, verse 8, the Israelites making this proclamation, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And their little daughter under her breath mutters, liars. (laughs) She knew the rest of the story. Does the word relayed and the word taught, the word that is preached, the word that is sown, does it land on good soil and take root? That's what was needed here. For them to hear the word of the Lord and for it to take root in their hearts and in their lives. And this is what even Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils. Because there can be the word that is sown on rocky soil. And what's the problem? It doesn't take root. It doesn't get down into people's hearts and lives and change them. And then what happens? Jesus says, then there are persecutions that come on account of the world, or on account of the word from the world. There are tribulations and hardships. And what happens when those things come? That word does not last. It has no root. The seed is removed and taken away. Or what about, what about the, the seed that falls on the thorny ground? And what happens? Immediately it it springs up, right? But again, it gets choked out. What does Jesus say it gets choked out by? 
other desires, other things, the love of the world. Are we willingly receiving the word and then letting it have its way with us? Do we submit to its authority? Do we allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly? And dear brother and sister, we do this because we've counted the cost. We've said, we know that we're going to have to die to ourselves. We know that we're going to have to deny ourselves daily. We know that we're going to have to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. This isn't easy believism. This is what Jesus talks about in Luke 14, 25 and following. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and, de and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The Lord wants us to receive his word willingly, but let us count the cost as we receive that word. Let us say, yes, I will renounce everything else for the sake of Jesus Christ. Moses goes back to tell the Lord Israel's response. And what does the Lord say to him? The Lord says, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. I'm about to meet with you that the people may hear when I speak with you. Why? So they also may believe you forever. The people needed to hear the Lord speaking these words to Moses. God and Moses were going to talk together. But this was going to happen for a reason so that the people would listen and believe what Moses would say. That when Moses came and said, thus says the Lord, the people would pay attention, would follow, and would obey. It is showing the people, and it's showing us, that in order for us to receive the word, we need a mediator. We need someone who speaks with God and someone 
to whom God has communicated. We need a go-between just as they needed a go-between, but they don't need just any go-between. They need a mediator who has been in the presence of the Lord. A mediator who has been with God. And they are supposed to listen to Moses because Moses is communicating to them the very word of God and they are to take that word for what it is. It's not the word of man. It's not the word of earthly origins. It's the word of God. Are you willingly receiving the word of God? And are you saying, Lord, let your word have its way with me in every area, in every aspect. Not just some areas where it's easy and nice. You know, like, you might have someone into your home and you might say, my home is your home. But you don't really mean it, do you? You want that person going through your drawers? You want that person going through your checkbook? Are you willing to say to the Lord, Lord, I want your word to have its way with me in every area of my life. I've counted the cost. I'm willing to renounce everything daily to follow you. Number two, we are to make ourselves ready and not rush into the presence of the Lord. We are to make ourselves ready and not rush into the presence of the Lord. Moses makes his way back up the mountain again. In fact, in Exodus 19, Moses is making his way up and down the mountain three different times. In fact, as we go through Exodus, he'll make this trek seven different times. Here is this man, 80 plus years old, going up and down the mountain again and again and again. And so here, again, he goes up, up to the Lord. This time the Lord gives instructions so the people can prepare themselves to meet him. And there is responsibility on Moses' part and on the people's part. First, Moses is to consecrate them or he is to sanctify them. He is to set them apart as holy to God. These cannot be just ordinary people. They are to be people devoted to the Holy Lord. As if we think about the Israelites, in one sense they were very common, very ordinary people. But when they were going to meet the Lord, they could not stay that way. Something had to change. What does it say? They were supposed to wash their garments. Some even think that these might be the garments that came out of Egypt. Remember, they plundered the Egyptians, so, so the Egyptians are giving them their money. They're giving them their clothing. So maybe these are clothes that they even got from the Egyptians now that they are going to wash, most likely for the very first time. Some even go so far as to say, 
If you remember, they don't have much water here in the desert, so it could be that the Lord gives them a couple days because there could be long lines of people waiting to get to the source of water to wash their garments, right? But here it is, these two days, they're supposed to wash their garments. Why? Because this was an external, outward sign that is supposed to demonstrate what is going on in their hearts. I'm purifying, I'm washing my garments white because I want to have a pure and washed heart before the Lord. They do this for two days. And then what? Then on the third day, spectacular things always happen on the third day in the Bible, don't they? On the third day, Yahweh will descend on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. The Lord himself will come to his people. He has not left them to themselves. He has not left them alone. He has come to meet with them and to have a relationship with them. But there must be a distinction. When the Lord descends on Mount Sinai, there is something that changes about the mountain. It is no longer just an ordinary mountain. It is a mountain that the Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, has come upon, and so it is a holy mountain. And just as when Moses stood before the burning bush and was told to remove his sandals because he was standing on holy ground, so now the mountain must be treated with the utmost care. Not because the mountain is anything in and of itself, but it is the place where the Lord has descended upon It's the place where the presence of the Lord is. And where the presence of the Lord is, there's life. And while we long for this relationship between us and God, there are barriers that they're to set in place. There is a distinction. For how much we might want to rush into the presence of the Lord, for how much we might be curious, for as much as we think we have the right to go into the presence of the Lord, we remember that there is this great chasm of our sinfulness that separates us from God. How is it that the creature can meet with the Creator? How is it that the impure are able to meet with the pure? How is it that the sinful are able to meet the sinless? How is it that the unrighteous are able to meet with the righteous one? How is it that the unholy and profane are able to meet the holy? Even with the people being consecrated and set apart for the Lord, there is still a limit that's set around the mountain. You may come this close, but no closer. The distinction remains. And the distinction must not be blurred. The warning is strict and the consequences are severe. You don't play with God. You don't treat God as common. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Do not profane him. 
Do not disrespect him. Do not devile him. And the consequence here we see is serious because the consequence is death. Come near to the Lord and you try to touch this mountain like you're trying to touch God. You try to look at God. God says those people deserve to die. In fact, it very literally says this, and dying, they will die. What's fascinating is that these are the same words that God uses back in the book of Genesis. Do you remember when God says in Genesis, and dying you will die? It's at the very beginning, right? In Genesis 2.12. If you eat of this forbidden fruit, I'm saying do not eat of this fruit, do not take from this tree and eat, but on the day that you eat it, what? You will surely die. Same, same phrase, same idea. Dying, you will die. I'm giving you this commandment to obey do not disobey, do not transgress my commandment, do not transgress my law, for in the day that you do it, you will surely die. And that's the same thing that he says here. If they do this, if they cross that barrier, that limits, that limit, they will die. And you know what? Take that person, don't even touch them. Notice how they want to come out and touch the mountain, right? But now it's don't even touch that person. Separate them in the sense of you touch them their sinfulness might come upon you and stone them or shoot them. This isn't shooting with a gun, just to be clear. They didn't have guns. Shooting with an arrow, something like that, right? But this is how seriously they are to take God. And there's a trumpet that will sound to let the people know to come up to the foot of the mountain and this trumpet is like this celestial trumpet that's being sound, that's announcing the king is coming. The king is coming. Make yourselves ready. And it's as if they were to come to the edge of the mountain like they are coming before the very throne of God himself as he descends to find his seat upon this throne. And they are to worship him. And so Moses consecrates the people. They wash their garments. They're waiting for the third day. And then look at what it says in verse 15. Something curious. <laughs> Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Why would he say that? Is that wrong? Is that bad? No, it's something very good. God's designed this. God's designed marriage. He's designed this kind of intimacy. But there is supposed to be an abstinence at this time to show them that their desire and their longing is to be greater than anything here on earth. They were not to lose themselves in earthly love. Their love was to be set upon God. And so physical abstinence was a spiritual preparation for coming into the presence of the Holy One.
And how I'm reminded in Ecclesiastes 5.1 that tells us, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Do not rush into the presence of the Lord. Never treat the Lord as ordinary. Make yourselves ready. How do you make yourself ready to meet with the Lord? How do you prepare yourself? Is there any thought given? Is there any desire? And what the picture is here is, it's a picture of a marriage, isn't it? I mean, think about what the Lord is telling the people to do. Wash your garments in the sense, like they're white, like they're clean, like the bride who's adorned herself in this dress that's pure white. This bride who has prepared herself by abstaining so that she is pure for her, her husband about, about who she's to be given to. And so here are these people now as if a bride has prepared herself for her wedding day. And so these people have prepared themselves to meet their God, to enter into this relationship with Him, to give themselves to Him so that this meeting with Him might be this sweet union and sweet communion and sweet fellowship such that it transcends any kind of earthly relationship that we would ever know. Let us make ourselves ready and prepare ourselves when we come into the presence of the Lord. But this leads us to number three. We are to revere Revere the holy presence of the Lord. We are to revere. We might not use that word much, revere. To stand in awe is what it means. To reverence. To be amazed and astounded and rightfully fearful of the holy presence of the Lord. And what an extraordinary sight we see now as the Lord descends upon Mount Sinai. Here are these thunders, these lightnings, this thick cloud that's wrapped the whole mountain. There's this smoke that's described because the Lord has descended upon it and fire. This is not Mount Sinai becoming a volcano. This is something supernatural and miraculous. This is not a natural occurrence. This is a supernatural occurrence of the Lord himself descending upon Mount Sinai. And we know that the presence of the Lord is there because of how it's described. Think about the other ways we've seen the Lord in the book of Exodus. He was a burning bush. There's fire. He was a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And now we even see this greater portrait of God unveiled on Mount Sinai. This is something unlike the Israelites had ever experienced before. And what is it shouting? What is it screaming? God is powerful. He is majestic. God is awesome in the true sense of the word. That is why he is to be revered. That is why we stand in awe of him. That is why we rightly fear him because we begin to comprehend something of his infinite greatness. And look at how the people responded. What does it say? 
they trembled. They were quaking and shaking in their boots, but they responded appropriately, rightly. And these are the people Moses led to meet God at the foot of the mountain. And not only did the people tremble, do you notice also that the mountain trembled greatly? Verse 18, the whole mountain trembled greatly. What a great response, not only from the people of God, but also from God's creation as well. And as they saw his presence there described, there was this blazing purity of the Lord. And it only highlights and shows the Israelites' impurity. And we realize it is good to fear the Lord. It is good to fear the Lord. The people who should really be afraid are those who feel no fear because they take God so lightly. We cannot take God lightly. How do I know this? Well, look at what it says here. There was this smoke that was rising up from the fire like what? Like the smoke of a kiln. The last time we read about smoke rising up like smoke out of a kiln was a very different scene, a scene that happens in Genesis 19 when the Lord rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Here comes down this judgment from God and there's this smoke that's rising up from Sodom and Gomorrah because of God's judgment upon those people. So what is being communicated to the Israelites? If you break this covenant, there will be judgment. If you do not obey the Lord, there will be judgment. And while all of this is happening, Moses and God have a conversation. It says that there's this trumpet that's growing louder and louder, expressing the greatness of this king to the whole world. But Moses, it says, kept on speaking to the Lord, and the Lord kept on answering him in thunder, right? Or with this very loud voice, the Lord continues to speak to Moses. And I don't think that it says thunder as if it's this indistinct sound, like Moses doesn't understand what the Lord is saying. I think it's saying the Lord is speaking to him in thunder because it is a very loud and very clear voice. You can't miss it. You can't misunderstand it. What God says to Moses is very clear. He doesn't have to ask the Lord to come again. And think, Moses talking with the Lord himself. And he is invited up even further up the mountain, closer to the holiness of God, even as if into the holies of holies itself. And is the God that we worship, the one whose greatness and glory is so magnified that our hearts and our minds would rightly and appropriately ever tremble before him. 
there must be a sense of reverence in our worship of God. It can in no way be trite, casual, or detached. This is the holy, holy, holy God, and we are meeting with Him. Our worship, our communion with Him must reflect that we stand in great awe and reverence of Him. Finally, number four, we are to be refined by the repeating word of the Lord. We are to be refined by the repeating word of the Lord. At the very end of verse 20, it says, and Moses went up, and so here he is going up again. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down. <laughs> so Moses just comes up again, and what's the first thing the Lord says to him? Go down, right? Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Again, this warning, this caution, do not let the people break through to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord in His holiness will break out against them. If the people get curious, if they think they can somehow get to a spot where they can get a better glimpse of God, maybe see Him better, they better be warned because when they try to do this, they will perish. They might break through, but God will break out against them for profaning His holiness. I mean, think about it. The Israelites are seeing an experience that they've never seen before with, with magnitude on a different scale. And yet, there's still that danger that they would treat God as common? That God would have to warn them again? Dear brother and sister, let us not be so foolish to think that this could not be us. But what, is, what does Moses say back to God? You already told us this, God, didn't you? We already set the limits around the mountain. You said set limits around the mountain to, and consecrate it. We've done that. Why are you telling this to us again, God? But God repeats his word because he knows his people better than Moses. He knows their weakness. He knows their propensity to sin. He knows their ability to disobey. They need to hear the word of God over and over and over and over again. And the Lord repeats himself to refine them, to make them into the people that he wants them to be. Here are these consecrated people, and he, he wants them to remain consecrated to him. He wants them to remain holy. He wants them to remain set apart and devoted to him. He wants them to hear again so that their obedience is sustained. And it's a reminder of what's said in Hebrews 12, 
verse 14, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Only those who are holy will see the Lord. And the Lord wants his people to remain holy. And so he says his word to them again and again. We need to hear God's word again and again and again. How dangerous it is to say, I've already heard that. I don't need to hear it again. No, we do. We do because we are prone to weakness. We are still prone to sin. We still do not understand everything perfectly. There is still work for the Lord to do in us through His Word. But we also remember this beautiful relationship that is ours so that we can meet with God but at the same time knowing our God is not safe but he is good if we think the relationship that is being demonstrated here between the Israelites and God is amazing as they are gathered together around Mount Sinai. The writer of Hebrews contrasts this event to something that's even greater. Would you turn there with me for a moment? Hebrews chapter 12. What a great event in Exodus 19. But the writer of Hebrews instructs us as Christians and how we think about it and even contrasts it with an even greater reality. 12 verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying how great and how awesome and how terrifying was that event that happened back in Exodus 19 when the Israelites and Moses were gathered around Mount Sinai and Moses himself trembled with fear. But the writer of Hebrews says, 
But you have come, dear Christian, you have come to a different mountain. You haven't come and you are no longer coming to Mount Sinai, but there is a better mountain that is in store for you. And what mountain is that? It is Mount Zion. Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the very picture of heaven. And so what we do when we come and we assemble and we gather together and we hear the word of the Lord and we come to meet with God and fellowship with God and commune with God, we get a taste of heaven because we have come to a different mountain, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. Is that what is in your heart when we gather together? I need to go here because I want heaven today. I want glory today. I want God today. I want this better mountain of the meeting of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn. Dear brother and sister, that is us. We are the assembly of God's firstborn children who are gathering together. What privilege God has given to us to make us his children who are enrolled in heaven. And we go to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And who else do we go to? Who else do we go to? We go to Jesus. What does it say there? The mediator of a better covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, but now Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The one who is our go-between, the one who can bring us to God, the one who was in the presence of God, but left his heavenly home with the Father and descended to earth, taking on human flesh, becoming a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the mediator that we need to bring us to God who is 100% man, but who is also 100% God. This is our mediator. And what does it say next? This is our mediator who brings us to God. Why? Because we're covered with another blood, aren't we? a better blood, a blood that speaks a word better than the blood of Abel. What, what, word, what words did that blood of Abel speak? Remember Abel in the Bible, who's killed by his brother Cain? Cain spills Abel's blood on the ground, and it's as if that blood is crying out. What is that blood crying out for? It demands justice. Something needs to happen because this innocent blood was spilt. And so Abel's blood demands justice. But Jesus Christ, the innocent one, hung on a cross bearing our sin and our shame, not demanding justice, but satisfying justice. That God's justice and judgment was the what we deserved, yet Jesus' blood satisfies that justice. He extinguishes God's wrath on our behalf. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, what? To be a propitiation for our sins, to extinguish God's wrath on account of our sins. And that the spilling of Abel's blood multiplied and exposed Cain's sin. God came to Cain and said, Sin is crouching on the door to have dominion over you, to overtake you. And that's what happened. But Jesus' blood doesn't multiply our sins, it takes our sins away. Removes all of our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. I'm not done with Hebrews yet. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not refuse this voice. Do not reject do not turn away from this voice. Receive the word. Let it have its way with you. And have certainty and assurance that it will have its perfect work in you because we are not part of a kingdom that can be shaken or a kingdom that is going to be removed we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Just like on Mount Sinai, when the earth was trembling, when there were lightnings and thunders and a dark cloud, our kingdom is a different kingdom. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a kingdom that will never go away. It's a kingdom that will never fall, will never be toppled, will never have to worry about some invasion that will overtake it. Our kingdom is secure and sure. And so what? Very end here of chapter 12. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? Reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And so we prepare to meet our God as we listen to Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 17. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Why? For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We are prepared to meet our God. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that there is no one here today who would refuse your holy word. But that they would listen to it. That they would receive it. That they would now long to be covered with a better blood, the blood of Jesus, the blood that satisfies your wrath, the blood that takes away their sin, the blood that gives them life. Father, I pray that today, not only would they understand their own sinfulness, but that they would understand their need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, and then then that there would be this wholehearted trust and faith put in Him. That they would count the cost and say, yes, it's worth it. It's worth denouncing everything to follow Christ. And then may they find peace, rest, and security in you. Father, I pray for your people this morning that our lives would be consecrated for you, giving of ourselves. We might be holy as you are holy. We might hold nothing back no compartment of our life left untouched. Father, that we would be like that seed that's fallen on good soil, bearing fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But bearing fruit because the Word of Christ has changed us. Continue to transform us into the likeness of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.